How do the greats of the trade become the best? And is there any one thing that they all have in common? That's a key thing that I think is true of everybody I interviewed. They're almost completely different in their approach, but the one thing they share is they've developed their own style. In this episode, we talked to Jack Schwager, who has met and interviewed the best traders in the industry and collated them into his famous Market Wizard books. But should new traders copy the world's best? And there are lots of opportunities. 100-point swing on the Dow. It's a necessary cost of doing business. Strategies and markets and bitcoins. I'll tell you why I think I'm a true and perfect. The Artful Trader. Hi and welcome to The Artful Trader. I'm Michael McCarthy, the Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets Asia-Pacific. Each episode, we'll hear the highs and lows from the trading experts and discover their journey to mastering the art of the financial markets. There's possibly no one in the industry who knows better the styles and approaches of the world's greatest traders than Jack Schwager. Jack has interviewed them all for his Market Wizard series. The four books start with Market Wizards and lead to his most recent offering, Hedge Fund Market Wizards. And who better to interview the top traders than a trader himself? Jack Swager started out on the floor before heading up futures research for some of Wall Street's leading firms. He was a partner in the Fortune Group, a London-based hedge fund advisory firm. Joining us from Boulder, Colorado, welcome Jack Swager to The Artful Trader. Hey, Michael. Jack, your first Market Wizards book came out in 1989, and for many young traders, myself included, it was one of the first books we were given to read. Uh, for those few listeners who don't know, The Market Wizards is a collection of stories from great traders around the globe. And now at least one whole generation of traders have grown up having cut their teeth on The Market Wizards books. Do you feel a special responsibility here, Jack? Um, I don't have a real responsibility, but... I, I do acknowledge that for better or for worse, there's been that influence. One of the things that certainly has happened to me so many times, I, I can't count, is people coming up to me and telling me, you know, I got into this industry um, because of you. And I presumably they're still in the industry and they're telling me that's good. And so it's benefited their lives and that's great. But being someone who's statistically oriented, I do recognize I don't know where, you know, what number people read the book and they lost money. Uh, so I, I don't know the people, I don't know what number of people uh, uh, failed, uh, but I certainly have had a tremendous number of people and including quite a number of hedge fund managers tell me that uh, the, the books were what got them into the business. It's not surprising, uh, Jack, that the stories are very strong. I mean, you've met some of the greatest traders seen over the last few decades. Who did you find the most impressive? Uh, I, I'm always, I always find it very difficult because when you're trying to compare people, you know, like like Kovner and Druckenmiller and and Thorpe and so forth, uh, Shaw, it, it's very difficult because there there are so many traders who are phenomenal in their own right that it's very very hard. I mean, you could say, well, maybe these twenty if I had to, or these ten, but to just say one is extremely difficult. Now, if I had to say one person that was actually most impressive for just for the scope of achievements, would probably be uh, Ed Thorpe, not only because he had this phenomenal track record. Uh, he ran two hedge funds. The first one ran 19 years. He lost money in three months out of in those whole 19 years. And each of those losses were less than 1%. And his annual return before fees was about 19%. So that's kind of a, 
The return risk on that is so far off the charts, it's unbelievable. But it's not only that. This is a fellow who was, uh, first of all, a PhD mathematician. He, uh, he would have been a PhD physicist, but he felt he didn't know enough math and went to get his, while he was writing his thesis, went to, went to study math and ended up getting his PhD there and never finished his physics thesis. He also did stuff like uh, he was the first one to come up with the equivalent, mathematical equivalent of the Black-Scholes model, option pricing model, which he used many years uh, before it was finally published by Black and Scholes. And uh, he had actually discovered a very mathematically equivalent approach uh, years earlier. And for that period of time, was probably the only person in the world who knew how to price options correctly. Uh, he was the first one to start a uh, market neutral fund, the first one to do stat arm, the first one to do uh, convertible arm. So he, he had such a scope of achievements that I say, okay, if I got to pick one, I'd say Ed Thorpe. But uh, hey, that doesn't mean that a lot of these other traders that I interviewed who, who had phenomenal achievements uh, are any less than uh, completely exemplary. Uh, uh, Jack, did anyone surprise you? That's a good question. Um, you know, that's one example of surprise was somebody who I knew who I knew well even before I interviewed him is Michael Marcus, who was the first interview of the chapter one of the first Marker Wizards book. And he was extremely reluctant to do the interview. In fact, he turned me down originally it, only because he, we knew each other and because a mutual friend sort of <laughs> campaigned on my behalf and convinced him to do it. At the time, he lived in Malibu, and actually, he had Rocky Stallone's uh, old <laughs> house. Uh, that's where he bought the house from, you know, overlooking uh, the beach in Malibu and all that. So I, I knew going in that he didn't want to do the interview, and I ended up doing this interview for the full day from morning, afternoon, and all the way, you know, uh, all the way through the evening. And it turned out he, he was remarkably candid and remarkably open and for someone who didn't want to do the interview to be that brutally honest and to share so many personal things about uh, his failures, uh, I guess that was surprising. It was a pleasant surprise. So there was an interview I gave. It was going to be was that my first interview. I was apprehensive about would it, would it work out, and it turned out to be uh, one of the best interviews I ever had in any of the books. Uh, and Jack, I think it's Michael Marcus, you quote, um, follow your own light. And this is a recurring theme in your work. Your first rule of trading is there's no single true path to becoming a market wizard. And uh, when you're out here in Australia speaking to the CMC Masterclass series, you, you mentioned there is no holy grail to trading. Can you expand on that theme for us? Sure. And you're right on both counts. It was Michael who said that. And it is a core part of my beliefs and message to all traders that uh, one of the most important things you can do is develop your own style and methodology. I did an um, interview a few days ago. Uh, well, that wasn't an interview. It was actually a webinar. But uh, there were questions at the end of the webinar. And one of the questions was, Jack, what do you think about the S&P? So I said, well, the first thing I got to say is, and, and I would be this honest if I said anything else, you don't want to know what my opinion is because one of the pieces of advice I always tell people is you don't want to ask other people for what their opinion is. You don't want to be influenced by other people, even if they're smarter than you, even if they know a lot more than you, and which I don't say is the case in my case, but no matter who it is, you don't want to try to style your trading to copy somebody else. It's just a wrong approach. And one of the things that I found, and actually... 
uh, there's a line, I forget which trader said it, but it was along the line, I'm paraphrasing, that every successful trader I've ever known has had their own trading style. And that's a key thing that I think is true of everybody I interviewed. They're almost, to a man and woman, completely different in their approach. But the one thing they share is they've developed their own style. I, I don't can't think of anybody that I interviewed who kind of sat at somebody's knee and learned an approach and that's what they did. And they did it so well they became really great at it. There's no interview I can think of that falls into that category. Everybody developed their own approach and those approaches can be radically different and even even contradict each other. So I've had traders who have said, uh, like uh, Jim Rogers, who's completely cynical about about uh, technical analysis. He's, he throws out a line like, uh, I never met a rich technician, unless you count those that sell their services. <laughs> and then you have traders like Schwartz, who spent his career on Wall Street selling the fundamentals of stocks and trading on the fundamentals of stocks. And by his own admission, lost money continually, and then became phenomenally successful as a futures trader trading on pure technical analysis. And looks at people who say that technical analysis is uh, is a bunch of nonsense, like Rogers does. Not quoted, not that he's talking to about Rogers, but about people of that opinion. And he believes, well, you know, what a bunch of nonsense. You know, that's I became rich doing that, and I failed using fundamentals. So you can find people who are 180 degrees apart on what is the right approach. So that tells you there is no right approach, but there is a right approach for each person, and neither you nor I can tell them what that is. They have to discover that on their own. So how do they discover their their trading style, Jack? Uh, trial and error. You know, uh, look, I'll use myself as an example. Um, I started out because I come from an economics degree background immediately cynical and skeptical like Rogers about technical analysis. And for the first number of years I was in this business, never looked at it or considered it or gave it a second thought. But through the influence actually of one of the analysts I had working for me, I was a research director at the time and uh, I had a bunch of fundamental analysts who worked for me and reported to me and I had one technical analyst. And I kind of noticed the technical analyst uh, who also had become a really good friend of mine uh, by the name of Steve Kronowitz. And I noticed he was the only one in the group that was actually right significantly more than wrong. And so being open-minded, I kind of asked him, hey, Steve, tell me what you do. And and through that process, I kind of learned technical analysis. I also understood through talking to him that it's not mumbo-jumbo. There is a rational explanation for why it should work. It should work because... No matter who you are, no matter how big or small a trader you are, no matter what information you have, everything that any trader does gets reflected in the market. So it's not like trades are being executed and nobody sees what they are. Anything that's done is is reflected in the market and the price. So it is not a far stretch to say that that price should contain real information because it's showing what all the smart and dumb money is doing, right? And in my own case, what I ultimately found was that a fundamental analysis didn't work for me. Technical analysis, uh, I found, was much more effective, and I felt much more comfortable with it, and I could use risk management uh, well with it. And so I went from being a 
purely fundamental trader and unsuccessful at that approach to being a technical trader. I was never a great trader, but at least I was net profitable. I'd like to focus in on on those traders who who have discovered their edge. I mean, in your interviews with them, did many of them give away the secret to their trading edge? Were they worried about that? Well, yeah, uh, some more than others, uh, certainly. Whether they gave away anything or not, I know I've had readers tell me that they styled their approach or learned, got their basic ideas out of particular chapters. At least in some cases, people said enough for other people to be able to develop trading methodologies off of that. But nobody actually, well, I shouldn't say nobody. There are some people who were very specific, uh, but for the most part, they didn't spell out exactly what they do. And once in a while, I'll look at Amazon reviews. You know, those Marco Wizard books, they, not patting myself on the back, but just the reader reactions are basically very positive. So a very large majority of five, some fours. And then you have a tiny percentage of people who have like ones or twos, like maybe two or three percent. And so you wonder, they're reading the same book. And if you look at the re- those reviews, other than the ones who are complaining that they didn't like the paper or their, <laughs> something like that, which <laughs> the ones that are talking about the content say something like this. There was not a single specific uh, system in here or something like that. Or like the idea was this, this fellow bought the book and he was expecting somebody to say, okay, you want to make a million dollars a year? You do one, two, three, four, five, and you'll make a million dollars a year. Now there are people who will sell him that but he didn't get it out of the book. And so uh, so therefore, uh, he felt there was not a single worthwhile trading idea in the book. <laughs> Whereas, of course, the majority of people find there's tremendous amount of trading uh, ideas in the book. The ones who, who don't are those who are probably rank beginners and have this kind of real misconception about what trading involves and what success involves and think there's some sort of secret and if the book doesn't give it to them on a silver platter, they think it wasn't worthwhile. They don't sound like the types who are going to make it as a trader, Jack. No, they probably won't. And uh, they don't have a realistic uh, concept of what's involved. I mean, you've established quite clearly that uh, the right style for any given trader is as much a product of who they are as what they trade. But given that... Do you see similarities between approaches that you could draw upon? I mean, are there characteristics or, or, or mentalities that most successful traders use? No, on uh, the characteristics and the mentality. Well, mentality maybe. Characteristics, no. You, you've you got as broad a range of personalities among the people I interviewed as in any other group you'd want to take. So you've got people who are very, very aggressive, you know, they could be marine sergeants, and in some cases were. <laughs> uh, and you've got people who are just very shy and withdrawn and quiet, and personalities are just all over the place. So th- that's not a commonality. Uh, f- for the most part, of course, there are commonalities. Um, there are commonalities uh, in such things as the respect, the understanding that risk management is the most important thing in their whole trading methodology. So that that is a common, there's lots of common dynamics like that. Uh, the uh, understanding that you have to be very, very flexible, uh, that you can't hold an opinion rigidly. You have to be able to turn on a dime. Uh, dogmatic people, I think, would do terrible as traders. Um, patience, there are a lot of, there are a lot of similarities in, in, in things traders do not so much their personalities, but there are certainly commonalities. 
Um, Jack, as traders, um, mistakes and learning from mistakes is is an important part of the process. Um, you're in a rather unique position in that you've sp- spoke regularly and, and continue to do so with many great traders. Have you ever been tempted uh, out of your comfort zone in those conversations? Have you ever done anything in the markets that uh, you possibly shouldn't have? Oh, I've, uh, like anybody who's ever traded the markets, I've done stuff I shouldn't have. Um, have you ever been tempted to take a tip? Oh, yeah. You know, so... That has certainly occurred, uh, or, or being influenced by somebody's trading opinion. And in fact, uh, a mistake that I made where I was influenced by another trader's uh, opinion on a market, and I had, I, at the time I was going away on a business trip, and I had that position, and he was on the other side. And because I, this was pre-cell phone days, you know, I wouldn't be able to follow the markets type of situation. And uh, against my own better judgment, after the markets closed, before I left for my trip, I went to the overnight desk and got out of my position. Uh, it was a cop-out because I could have just had a good till cancel stop. So by saying I couldn't follow it, that was absolutely true. But it was still a mistake because I could have used the stop. And of course, when I came back, the market had gone several hundred points in my direction. So I've had those experiences in the past. And, and I can't think of a single time we're listening to anybody ever was helpful. I can't think of times where it wasn't. And usually they were listening to people who were better traders than I was. So I just long time ago uh, decided that you don't want to listen to other people's advice. Uh, it'll just mess you up. Fair call. Um, what's the most unique style you've seen, Jack? Oh, yeah. Actually, there is one, there is one absolute answer on that. Uh, because there was one trader I interviewed that was so radically different than everybody else. This is a fellow called Jimmy Balademus, who was a prop trader for a New York firm. And the thing that was so different is that he literally broke just about every trading rule you could imagine and somehow managed to be very successful despite that. And it's, it is a bit of a paradox for me. I can't even tell you, or I try in a, in a chapter to explain why why he's still successful but this is a person that would um when you get markets that go radically in one direction where the market's on a complete tear in one direction he will step in and take the other side so like you remember uh, some years ago uh, i don't know five six seven years ago, whenever it was that uh, silver was like going straight up and making uh, you know it was like a wall it went uh, in the 30s 40s and eventually above 50 uh, you know, when it's in the 40s, just going up crazy, like a vertical cliff, he's in there selling. So this is the type of trading he would do. It went into his nature of um, of being contrary. He just had to be, he had to fight to everybody. He just, that was part of his nature. I think the first line in that chapter is, Jimmy Baldemus breaks all the rules. And I think the first line of my summary uh, at the end of the chapter was don't try this at home because my belief is that 999 out of a thousand people that would try anything like what he does will lose all their money <laughs> uh, so I don't think it's an approach that anybody else can can do it's something he pulls it off and the reason I decided well I do have a sense of why he pulled it off and I should say here that and I do disclose in the book full disclosure the reason I found Jimmy uh, was my son was actually a trading assistant for him. So he would tell me, Dad, you wouldn't believe the guy I'm working for. And that's how I know he's for real as well. 
anyway, so um, he would trade a lot, like lots, like maybe 500 trades a day or whatever. Let's say he was bearish to market. He might be selling into a bull market. But every day, if a stock he was short went down a little bit, he'd buy it back. So he was always trading against his positions. And he was so good at capturing these profits, even when he was on the wrong side of the trend, that even in a month where the, where he was on the wrong side and the market went a few percent against him, he'd at least break even. And when he was on the right side, of course, he'd do very extremely well. Wow. So um, it was that skill in sort of trading against his positions that compensated for the fact that he would sometimes be on the opposite side of a screaming trend. Uh, even though I tell everybody, or I say, make it very clear, nobody should trade like, like Baldemus does. The one thing I took away from that interview that is really relevant to just about anybody is that the lesson to be learned is that trading is not a static process. It's a dynamic process. So most traders or a lot of traders think of trading as a two-decision endeavor. You have to decide where to get in and where to get out, and that's it. But it's not. There's no written rule that you should get in 100% at one price and out 100% at one price. And so the idea that if you're, let's say, in a position and it goes to say in your favor, yeah, you don't want to just take small profits, but if it goes enough for in your direction quickly enough, there's a lot to be said for taking partial profits, looking to reinstate, uh, by say taking partial profits, whatever your approach is, taking it at a point where you think the market might meet resistance or a reaction, and then taking part of the profits and looking to put it back in if you do get the reaction. And so that type of process not only will lock in profits and make you, if, if you if the market does have a reaction, allow you to get back in and get more profits than you would have otherwise, but it puts you in a very strong position because if you had the entire position, get a profit, and the market starts coming back, you're worried about losing it all, and you probably just blow out of your whole position. Uh, whereas if you've taken partial profits, you're actually almost wanted to come back a bit so you can put it back on again. And it makes you, puts you in a much stronger position. So I think that mentality of trading against a position can be useful in many ways. And I think that is a potentially powerful tool for traders who've only looked at trading as an in and out proposition, as opposed to something which is dynamic and, and the position can be scaled up and down based on market movements. So that's what anybody can take away from the Baladimus interview. Um, Jack, one of the things that almost all traders do around the globe when they get together is tell the stories of their most memorable trades. Um, naturally, given your overview of trading and traders, our listeners are very interested to hear what you might regard as the best and worst trades that you've ever seen. Uh, let's take Stanley Druckenmiller. This is going to be both the worst trade ever and the best trade ever, kind of in one story. <laughs> so Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, and for those listeners who uh, who may not know who Stanley Druckenmiller is, uh, Stan ran his own fund, his own uh, hedge fund, for, I think, well over 30 years. Uh, he's now retired, but over that 30-year period or so, he averaged close to, he compounded at close to 30% a year. Wow. Uh, he also ran, for, during that period of time, for a good chunk of time, I don't know exactly, seven years plus, or give or take, he was actually managing George Soros's primary fund. And this is when George Soros was in Europe and when the Berlin Wall fell and trying to help get those countries sort of leaning towards a capitalistic um, 
system and he was trying to influence the situation. And so he was really focused in on that a lot more than the markets. And uh, Stanley Druckenmiller was doing the day in, day out trading. So that's who, who Druckenmiller is. Now, Druckenmiller at the time, this is before he joined Soros, he was managing seven funds for, uh, for Dreyfus. And um, it was in 1987. And for several months at the time, he'd been net short uh, the stock market. And then on Friday, October 16th, 1987, that week the market had been down sharply uh, and also very much on that Friday. And it came so far down that Stan said to himself, well, it should be support here. It's probably going to bounce. So what did he do? He covered his entire short position and he leveraged long on that Friday close. And this is the Friday before the the big October 19th crash, which is the biggest one-day decline in the U.S. market in history, and probably bigger than most one-day declines almost in any market ever experienced. Uh, the market in futures, which were not locked, which were trading, uh, the market was down, I think, 29% on that Monday. So imagine switching from short to long the day before the market is going to go down Whoa. 29% in one day. So uh, you cannot make up a worse mistake. Now, the best trade ever, again, <laughs> Druckenmiller, <laughs> That same trade, because if you look at his record for October 87, he, he almost broke even. How, how, how could that possibly be true? Well, he was, he was short for the first half of the month, so he was making money. But here's the thing. Over the weekend, and the reasons are, the reasons are tangential to this question and answer, uh, there are reasons why he decided he had made a bad mistake. And so he knew over the weekend he should not have reversed his position. So he had intended to go back short on Monday. Problem is he comes in, the market's down, gaps down 10, 12%, right, right, right at the start. So what does he do? With the market gapping down from where he just switched his position, he switches right back and he gets back net short. So you think about the flexibility of a trader to, to go from net long to short, have the market gap down 12%, not hesitate for a minute, to hope that maybe it'll bounce back in a little bit at such a big downside gap, but not only gets out of the position, but reverses back to the original short, 12% down from where you got in. Wow. That's like just remarkable. So it's both the worst trading mistake ever made that I came across and probably maybe the best trade ever as well. Can Will robots take over the markets? That's, that's a good question. Um, maybe at some point, and I guess... Uh, by some point, I'm, I don't know if that's 30 years, 50 years, 100 years. So given the incredible progress, the, the exponential progress we've seen in computing power as well as computing algorithms in the realm of artificial intelligence, I, I, I'm reluctant to say never because uh, things that w people thought were impossible for computers to take over a decade or two ago have become reality. Uh, so in that respect, at some point, it may well happen. And if it does happen, the efficient market hypothesis will, proponents will finally be right. But um, I would add that it's a far more complex thing to achieve than, say, something like uh, getting computers to, to excel or to beat humans in chess. So that was a difficult problem, but... In orders of magnitude, it doesn't come close to the markets because in chess you have well-defined moves which don't vary, and there's 
only a certain number of possible moves. The markets, however, you're dealing with a lot more elements that influence prices, a lot more players, and even more critically, the effect of any particular input does not stay constant. It can vary greatly over time. So you may go from situations with, say, monetary policy is a big influence on the markets to where it's not an influence at all. You can have situations where stocks and bonds go up together, and you can have situations where they go in opposite directions. So even the individual elements of the markets don't maintain their same reactions and directions. So it's an exceedingly complex problem. But clearly, there are groups, uh, again, uh, some which I've interviewed, like Paul Thorpe uh, and uh, D.E. Shaw, and ones that I haven't, like Renaissance, who uh, is, has a phenomenal track record, that have used computerization, computerized approaches to excel at the market. So even, even now, it's being done. But to the point where the computerized approaches are exclusive, I think that point is still a ways off. Jack, what are you working on now? So uh, my, my endeavor at the moment is uh, a fintech startup where I'm a partner in called Fundseeder. Fundseeder is a uh, platform for traders. Right now it's a platform for traders. We're also building a platform for investors, allocators. And so the idea of Fundseeder is to discover global tra- undiscovered global trading talent and be a connector between those set of skilled traders anywhere on the globe who don't have, who may be able to trade, but have no way of attracting investors. And that's easy to see. You can think of uh, countries like, you know, Eastern Europe or Asia or any other than the G7, where even if people were good traders, they'd have no way of really uh, attracting capital. And even within developed countries, uh, even within the U.S. or U.K., you can have a lot of traders who are skilled but don't have the pedigree, don't have the connections, whatever, uh, and they'll have no way of getting in front of the right people or getting serious attention. So at Fundseeder, our idea is to have a platform where these traders can link their actual accounts to the platform, use a whole set of analytics, you know, for their own benefit to, you know, risk management, uh, to analyze their own traders, uh, trading, approve it, whatever. But most importantly for us, for us to be able to discover them, to verify their trading because we're getting the data directly from the brokerage, and then to use that database of traders as a resource for an investor site where allocators can go and find undiscovered trading talent. So that's the basic concept. We spent the first couple of years developing the platform for traders and getting traders onto that platform. Uh, that will greatly expand as well. But right now we're developing the investor platform and we expect that within the next year we should uh, be acting as a conduit through the investor platform for uh, significant allocations to these traders that are selected. And that's fundseeder.com for the website. So is this a way of finding the next market wizards, Jack? Yeah, that's uh, actually one one thing that, that it can do as well. It's not for that reason, but one of the plans is that after the site's been running for a few years and we've got track records of enough length and enough traders, that the next market wizards book would be so, uh, one with a working title, Undiscovered Market Wizards, and would really be basically from people that we found via this uh, web solution to finding uh, traders. Um, Jack Swagger, thank you very much for your uh, generosity with your time and your knowledge. Our traders and uh, listeners will no doubt benefit. Oh, thank you very much. 
that was Jack Swager. For more information about his books and for an exclusive blog post written by Jack, head on over to theartfultraderpodcast.com where new and current clients can also access some limited time offers. The Artful Trader is an original podcast series by CMC Markets, a global leader in online trading. To stay up to date with the new episodes, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite podcasts from. And make sure you share it with your friends and leave us a rating. I'm Michael McCarthy, and this is The Artful Trader.